Would you stand with me one more time, please, and let's read together the text this morning, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. We'll read this together in unison. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are, we are eager to be here again together in this event of your spoken word that you have ordained for your church to participate in. Father, we know that you have given to the church this opportunity of preaching the word to hear from you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Father, we ask that you would fill us. Fill us as we speak. Fill us as we hear. That we would not speak or hear like natural men. But that we would, in having the mind of Christ, receive the things that are delivered to us by the Spirit of God. The things that magnify Christ. The things that exalt Your glory, Father. We pray that You would teach us from Your Word, humble us before the authority of Christ's magnificent teaching. We pray that as, as those who heard the Sermon on the Mount said, who has taught like this? And we're amazed at the authority of Christ that we would also be amazed at the authority of Christ and the teaching that He gives to us in this text about speaking to You, our Father. So Father, we come to You today with thanksgiving because we can call You Father, because You hear us, not because of our merit or our performance or our inherent value, but You hear us because of Christ, because of His performance, because of His atonement, because of His infinite value. And being in Him, You hear us. He being our mediator, you hear us. And so may we, may we take prayer, the gift, the privilege that you have given to us, and use it and walk in it lovingly the way you would have us so that you are glorified in the accomplishment of your will. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Pray then like this. This text yields to us an, really an obvious main point that we've been working through together over the last couple of weeks. And it's this, Lord Jesus, teach us to pray then like this. Of the many things that Jesus' disciples asked Him to teach them, this is one of them. He said, Lord, teach us to pray. Think of all the other things that, that the disciples of Jesus could have asked Him to teach them. That could have been recorded in the Gospels. Teach us to. But this one is the thing that we see. Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus does teach them to pray. We see that question and then the answer in Luke 11 in particular. 
So we've been looking at this the last few weeks, and let me give you a high speed, again, just a 30,000 foot review, zipping right through to the place where we left off last week. First of all, we looked at the broader context of this particular teaching. It's found in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is the law of the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God's law that is taught by the king of that kingdom. When Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come here, the kingdom of God is in your midst, what he meant is that the king was here and present. Wherever the king is, is the place of the reign of the king. Now we have to be careful with that. Because as we see the Sermon on the Mount as the law of the kingdom of God, we have to understand that even this law is a tutor. Because it, in doing, in attempting to do the law of this kingdom, we will not be able to achieve membership in that kingdom. The law is far too high. Jesus said throughout the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness what exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so as soon as we begin to read through the kingdom of God's law, this Sermon on the Mount, we see our sinfulness for what it is. It reveals our sinfulness and our inability to enter the kingdom of God by our own doing. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said unto you, you shall not, and so on. He refers to several laws and he shows us the true meaning of that law. When he says, you shall not commit adultery, we we look at ourselves and we think, well, I've never committed adultery. But then Jesus says, but I say to you, if you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. So we see the true meaning of the law of God. And we find all of ourselves crushed under the weight of God's law and utterly unable to enter the kingdom of God by keeping these laws. That's the, that's the first point of the of the Sermon on the Mount, to show us that. So that when we come to the king, we say, I am poor in spirit. I am mourning over my sin. And those who come to the king, poor in spirit and mourning and hungry for the righteousness that they don't have, the king gives it to them. He gives them his righteousness. He satisfies them. And he welcomes them into his kingdom. So this law of the kingdom inevitably then tutors us to Christ. Because in Him is this perfect righteousness that He gives to all who come to Him and are willing to submit to His Lordship. He gives it to them freely through faith. But then, having entered the kingdom of God by His grace, through the gift of salvation, through the gift of the King's righteousness being imputed to us, this law then becomes a tool in the hand of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, working in those whom He has made His kingdom members by a gift of grace. So then, we come to the immediate context. This section on prayer. Matthew 5, I'm sorry, Matthew 6, 1-15. through And Jesus is teaching us about praying as a member of His kingdom. And we learn there that prayer is is a God-centered activity. In other words, Jesus teaches us there, as you can read through verses 1-8, through that prayer is not forgetting praise from men, though we would seek often to use it that way. Neither is prayer primarily a way of coaxing earthly stuff from God. God already knows the needs that we have before we ask Him. And as a father, He's willing to give us those needs. 
And prayer is ultimately about something else, something bigger, something greater. The kingdom, the king is then teaching, graciously teaching his citizens how to pray. He's correcting our self-centered, worldly praying and making it more glorious and according to God's will for His his kingdom members. And so we come to the structure of the prayer and then we begin to see, just by looking at the structure of this prayer, what praying is all about. And we've, we've talked through this in detail. We saw, first of all, that praying is a relational thing. And you can follow this along in your outline. Prayer is about a relationship. The prayer begins with our Father in heaven. And as we come to prayer, what is the relationship that we are to have in mind? It's our relationship with God. But in that relationship, we're to be mindful of the heavenliness of God. Our Father in heaven. And we have to remember that when we come to prayer, we're coming to the, to the best and greatest of beings in the universe. The Creator who is eternal, who holds the waters of the earth in the palm of His hand, who calls the stars and the sun and the moon and all the heavenly bodies out by name and and doesn't lose any of them. The One who holds the nations as a drop in the bucket, as dust on the scales and so on. We think of this. This is the heavenliness of God. This is the infinite greatness of God. This is the One to whom we come in prayer. And it is absolutely amazing, astounding to think that He then is also our Father. Prayer is a privilege given only to those who have experienced the new birth, adoption into the family of God, and salvation in Jesus Christ the King. So first, and we talked in great detail about this, the prayer is about a relationship. Praying like this cannot be done apart from being a child of the Father in heaven. But once we understand that, then we see an order of requests. The first request, and there's a couple different ways that the requests of this prayer can be divided up. It's not wrong to divide it up in halves to say the first three requests are requests that we desire for the glory of God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are requests that we're asking about God. And then the second three requests are requests that we're asking for something for ourselves. But I think probably even more accurately, keeping in mind that division, that this first request is the priority of all of the requests. This first request is the request that shapes, that is served by all of the other requests. It's hallowed be your name. What are we praying about? We're praying about, secondly, and you can see it in your notes, God's reputation. Not our reputation, but God's reputation. And this is the the priority of prayer. It's asking God to set apart His name to us. His being. His attributes. His actions. his, his, His authority. Setting it apart from everything else in our minds, in our hearts, so that we see Him for who He truly is. So that we marvel at Him as we ought. And we love Him as He deserves to be loved. And live for Him in a way that reflects His name to others. Hallowed be Your name. Set Your name apart in my heart and mind, Father, so that I know You as You really are and love You as You deserve. And I honor You. It's asking for God to reveal Himself to us through His Word. 
Through creation, we see his nature as well. Even through the circumstances of our life, as his providence works, we can experience the attributes of God at work in Christ for us. It's praying for a clear, accurate, overwhelming sense of who God is and His righteousness and His justice, His wrath, His knowledge, His presence, His love, His mercy, His grace, His strength, His sovereignty, compassion, long-suffering, patience, kindness, and so on. Why though? Why would we see God like that and experience His attributes so that then we can respond to Him rightly? Love Him. Honor Him. Serve Him. But that's not only a request for ourselves, it's really a request for everyone. It's asking God that He would use us and every means that He would choose to make His holiness known in the earth so that He would be known and worshipped and adored by all peoples as He deserves. That's what hallowed be your name is about. And now everything else falls under that request. Everything. Your kingdom come. We pray about Christ's return. The return of Christ is the most powerful and effective and immediate act of our Father for the hallowing of His own name. That would be the appearing of Christ. There will be nothing like the return of the King that will immediately and globally cause the name of God to be hallowed. So we pray for it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's reign. We pray about His reign. So we pray in terms of relationship. We pray about God's reputation. We pray about Christ's return. We pray about His reign. What are we praying for? We pray about His reign. Again, this is all review that we're getting to. We're coming to to request number, or point number five, but request four. We're praying about His reign first. I believe as we pray for Christ's Reign, we're asking for men to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ, that that would advance and increase. In other words, the Great Commission. As men's hearts are drawn to Christ for salvation, their hearts are submitted to the Lordship of Christ, and His reign advances and increases. Another thing that we pray about when we say, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that that the King's revealed will would be loved and obeyed by His subjects on earth as it is in heaven. We talked about that last week. We sang about it this morning. But also, when we say, Your will be done, we pray that the King's secret will would be done. And it will be. He is sovereign. But we confess to Him in that request that we desire and delight in His good rule in all things. And why do we ask for this? Why do we ask for Christ to return? Why do we ask, that men would submit to the Lordship of Christ through salvation? Why do we ask that we as God's people would obey Him on earth as the angels obey Him in heaven? It's because in all of these activities, God's name is hallowed. God's name is known. God's attributes are known and loved and honored as they deserve. Let's look to some new material this morning. We come to the next request. It's number five in your outline. Resource. We need resources. 
these three requests. First of all, give us this day our daily bread. What is Jesus teaching us to ask for in this request? He's teaching us to go to our Father for every earthly need that we have. Give us this day our daily bread. We are to ask our Father to provide all that we need to sustain our earthly lives. What do we need to sustain our earthly lives? We need lots of things, don't we? Food, strength, a beating heart, a thinking mind, breathing lungs, rest. We need money, some anyway, shelter, clothing. Give us this day our daily bread. This is not asking God to give us big barns in which to keep great stores of earthly provision so that we will feel secure in our great stores. Who asked for the, or who didn't ask for them? Who talked about doing that in the Scriptures? The rich fool, right? In Luke twelve eighteen. Our security must never rest in earthly stores. Think about that. Does your security, your sense of security, rest in your stores, your earthly stores? Our security is to be only resting in the daily provision of our Father. The daily provision of our Father. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. This request is asking God to provide for us what we need each day. Not so that we spend the resource our Father gives us on empty worldly pursuits, but so that we have exactly what we need to engage in those activities that what? Hallow His name. Again, this comes back to the first request. Father, give us this day our daily bread, everything and only what is necessary for the hallowing of Your name. Again, that that first request shapes every other request. It's to be served by all the other requests. Father, provide all that I need to do Your will today. You need things to do the will of God, don't you? You need food. You need rest. You You need thought. You need ability. You need skill to do the will of God. You must be sustained. You see, think about it with food. Food we take in so that we live. And we live so that we do God's will. We do God's will so that we hallow His name. That's the point of life. And we pray about that. Everything then has a purpose. One singular ultimate purpose. Father, provide all I need to proclaim the Gospel today so that Your name is hallowed as I speak. Father, provide all that I need to wait for the Son's return so that in my waiting and my longing for You, you You are honored. You are hallowed. This is not to say that our Father will never give us more than what we need. He often does give more than what we need. In fact, I think, I think all of us could say, I have more than what I absolutely need. 
even the supply that He gives to us, He delights in. But ultimately, it's for the hallowing of His name. But clearly, this request, in this request, Jesus is teaching us to depend upon our Father in prayer for every earthly provision. Why do I say earthly provision? Because Jesus talks about what here? Bread. That's an illustration of every earthly provision that we need to do His will for His name to be honored. Give us this day our daily bread. But then also, Jesus is teaching us to depend upon the Father in prayer daily. This day for every earthly provision. It's a daily dependence. It's a daily prayer. That's often how God gives it to us. Very often we look at the day ahead of us and we think, I have a sense of what God has called me to do today, but I don't have it. How often do you look at yourself in an earthly sense and see woefully deficient resources on some level? That's where God calls us to live. Because then we find ourselves going to Him daily in prayer and saying, God, I need this to do Your will. I know what You have called me to do today. By Your grace, I need something today. If You don't give me this daily bread, I will not be able to do Your will as I discern You would have me to for the honoring of Your name. So I need daily bread. Father, I need strength. I need thought. I need food. I need clothes. I need shelter. I need some money. I need ability, skill to do Your will for the hallowing of Your name. And see, our Heavenly Father is delighted in that praying. That's the way He designed our relationship to be. And He receives glory in the daily meeting of our needs. Think of how how God was to His children in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, 1-4 the whole commandment that I command you today shall you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. God taught His people 40 years walking through the wilderness to pray this. They didn't often pray it, but that was the point. Give us this day our daily bread. Manna was coming down how often? Daily. And just enough for that day. And He let them hunger so that they would depend on His daily provision. So that they would learn to trust Him. And that verse, I think we often misinterpret 
Man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, I, I, was, I was taught that that verse meant something like this. It's not just physical provisions that we need from God. We need His Word. We need spiritual provisions. And that's not what that means at all. Think about this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, upon what will you live? Upon what will you depend from day to day as you go through the wilderness that God has appointed for you? Are you going to live on human resources? Or are you going to depend on God to speak your needs to provide for you each day? That's what that means. That God, you would depend upon the Word of God to supply you daily with what you need to live. Is that something? That's how they live. When they need water, what happened? Speak to the rock. And out came water. Sandals didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. When they needed food, God spoke and brought daily to them the food that they needed. That's how we're called to live. That tests our hearts, doesn't it? That tests our hearts like nothing else. Because we want to feel at ease because we have a a storehouse of bread. But God says, no, I want to give you bread daily as you ask me for it. That's how he wants us to live with him. But again, the motivation is there so that I would be enabled to do his will. It is, it is urgent that we have daily bread because we need to be able to do God's will for his glory. Matthew 6, 31-33 describes wonderfully the Father to whom we come for this daily bread. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 through Paul instructs Timothy that what is most important is godliness. The hallowing of God's name by how we live. That's godliness. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. He comes at it from a little bit of a different angle, but basically Paul's saying if you have what you need daily to live and to pursue godliness, be content. And we can pray that way. God, please give me what I need today. I'll be content if you give me what I need today to pursue godliness for the hallowing of your name. I love how the psalmist prays to the Lord, begging God to sustain his life so that he can live to praise him. You'll find phrases throughout the Psalms. You can mark them as you read through the Psalms. Things like the psalmist saying, God, will, the, will those who are in Sheol praise your name? Will the rocks cry out if I die? Things like that. Who's going to praise your name? Who's going who's to live for your name if I go down to the grave? Psalm 88, 10-12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. 
Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? What is the psalmist praying for? God, sustain my life. Give me daily bread. Keep me alive so that I can praise you. So that I can declare your steadfast love. So I can declare your faithfulness. That's this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread so that your name would be hallowed. Psalm 6, 4-5. through Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And does God delight to answer those prayers? Yes, according to His will. God wants all, Christ, as He's teaching us to pray, wants us to view life, our lives, our daily provision as another means of hallowing God's name and to pray to our Father like that. Father, please, meet my daily needs so that I may honor Your name today. Psalm 145, 16, like we read earlier today. He answers, you open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. Dear ones, there is nothing too great, nothing too small to ask from the hand of our Heavenly Father that you need for each day. But know in your praying that He will only give, and really we must only ask for what will bring about the hallowing of His name. Understanding this request will help us to know what to ask for. It will help us to understand how to be content when He says no. And to know what to do with what He grants us each day. Give us this day our daily bread so that Your name would be hallowed. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray like this. How do You handle it when You ask for something? What have you been asking for for a long period of time? Are there certain requests that have stayed on your prayer list for weeks, months, years? Father, I need this. I long for this. But I don't want it if it doesn't mean, if it means that your name's not going to be hallowed to, as it would be unless I don't have it. Right? That's, that's the ultimate prayer that we're praying here. Only give this to me, Father, if your name would be hallowed in the giving. Take it if you will be hallowed in the taking of it. That's, that's what Jesus is teaching us in this prayer. Even for daily things. Daily things. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray then like this. And then Jesus, Jesus teaches us to pray not only for earthly provisions, but also for spiritual provisions. That's where he goes in the final two requests. Spiritual provisions. Beginning with reconciliation. Let's call it that. Forgiveness is the word that Jesus uses. Forgiveness. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we pray in terms of relationship. We pray for God's reputation first and foremost. We pray for Christ's return. We pray for His reign, God's reign. We pray for resources from God. And then we pray about reconciliation. We pray about forgiveness. Debts here 
are certainly in context with the words forgiveness, referring to sin, offenses, transgressions. So in this request, Jesus is teaching us to pray about forgiveness. The forgiveness we give to others for sinning against us, that's one thing we pray about, but also the forgiveness that we long for from our Heavenly Father that He would give to us when we sin against Him. Jesus is teaching us in this prayer to ask the Father to forgive us in the same way that we forgive others. That is an intense thought. Father, forgive us the way I forgive others. Now, we have to be careful with this statement as well, as we do with all of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not teaching works righteousness by this request. In other words, Jesus is not indicating to us that we may earn the Father's forgiveness of our sins against Him through our forgiveness of the sins of others against us. Jesus is not teaching that. Like, okay, you can earn the Father's forgiveness by your forgiveness of others. That's, that would be to take this in the wrong direction. That teaching would contradict everything else Jesus taught and the apostles taught, certainly. But Jesus is teaching us in praying about forgiveness that there is a connection, a a correlation, if you will, between our forgiveness of others and the Father's forgiveness of us. We have to see a connection. It's very important. He's teaching us that for the members of His kingdom, it would be utter foolishness to refuse forgiveness to others only to turn around and ask forgiveness from our Father. That would be foolishness. For members of Christ's kingdom, it would be utter foolishness to think that bitterness and malice and revenge and coldness and payback is the right response to others' sins against us only to turn around and expect our Father to be merciful and gracious and atoning and forgiving and patient with us when we ask Him. That doesn't compute. Jesus is teaching us that if we are going to ask our Father to freely and joyfully, eagerly forgive our greater sins against Him, and He does in Christ, then we must also ask our Father to enable us to forgive others far lesser sins against us with the same freedom, joy, and eagerness. It seems to me in this request that Jesus is teaching us to ask the Father, in a sense, to hold us accountable, and He will, for the way in which we respond to the sins of others against us so that we may learn to forgive others the way He has forgiven us. These words lead us to pray like this, Father, I ask You to forgive me the way I forgive others. And therefore, I plead with You to teach me to forgive others the way You have forgiven me. Father, teach me to so delight in the forgiveness that You have granted to me that I also then take delight in giving that same forgiveness to others. That's how members of Christ's kingdom pray about forgiveness and reconciliation. 
And this, this, is, this is a teaching that pervades the New Testament. Jesus taught this way, not just in the prayer, but elsewhere, that there is a correlation, there's a connection between the way we forgive others and the way God forgives us. There's a relationship that exists for the members of his kingdom. Paul taught this, and we'll look at it in just a moment. But first, Jesus taught this in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Let me read to you the account. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? See, that's, that's the question that frames this discussion. How should we forgive one another? Is there a limit? Just seven times? Is that good enough? It almost sounds like maybe Peter's tired of being offended by the people around him. And he's like, all right, it's got to come to an end where I can't keep giving this forgiveness. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. What's his point? Continue to forgive. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven... Ah, that's what we're talking about with the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is a masterful parable that Jesus told. Each one of us feel the weight, like that first servant, of God's law upon us. And we know the penalty of failing to pay God's law perfectly. And so what do we do? We go to the master and we say, please, I cannot pay this. And he says, I forgive you. Now, how absurd would it be for then that servant, like Jesus describes, to turn around with a fellow servant who owes a tiny amount for us to say, You must pay it. I will not forgive you. What is Jesus teaching? Those who take that approach in life, 
and that's their, that's their way of dealing with others who have offended them, they do not know the forgiveness of God for them. Those who, yes, may struggle through forgiveness, but in the end delight in giving it because they have been forgiven much. Those are members of Christ's kingdom. That's what proves them to be. So then we have to ask ourselves, how does our Father forgive us? How does our Father forgive us so that we may delight in our forgiveness and delight in giving that same forgiveness to others? Indeed, Paul talks about this. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Would you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2? This text, we'll just look at it for a few moments. This text describes how God in Christ has forgiven us. Verse 13, Colossians 2. How does our Father forgive us so that we may delight in our forgiveness and delight in giving that same forgiveness to others? Verse 13 of Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, your debts, your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with Him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You ask the question right there. Now, how could God do that? Verse 14, He did it by Canceling the record of debt that stood against us. In other words, all of your sins, he canceled it. He erased it all. And not only that, but he canceled all that the law demands you pay for the sin that is in that long list. Which is what? Death. God's wrath. So he canceled, he erased your sin, and he erased the demand of the law that says you must die. The legal demands. So the record of debts and the legal demands, both erased. That's how God forgives you. But how did He do that? How could could God, being just, just wipe out your record of debt and wipe away the legal demand of death against that record of debt? He nailed it to the cross. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He took all of that record of debt and put it above Jesus' head on the cross. And he took all of the legal demands and he poured them out on his son. And therefore he forgives you. You are free. And when Satan would come back to say before God, but look at that record of debt. Look at that legal demand. Jesus says, no, you look at the cross. Verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Satan is a prosecuting attorney. And he comes before the throne of God and says, look, I have have files and files of sins against this, your child. 
And look, your law says that those who do these things must die. And God says, look again. And He opens the file and the file is empty. Because Christ took it all in our place. And God triumphed over Satan and all of his accusations at the cross. And Christ becomes our defense attorney. He's, look, (laughs) I took it all. I took the record of debt. I took the legal demand. I dealt with it. And they get to walk. I took the sentence. They get the freedom. And Satan is disarmed. Satan is silenced. That's forgiveness. God gives up the right to get even with us because of Christ. Now, here's the question. Do you delight in God's forgiveness of you like that? Do you delight in it? When you hear, when you you have felt the weight of your sin, the demand of the law, and then the grace of God, does that fill you with joy? It does. It fills us with joy and peace and amazement. We're humbled by it. We're grateful to tears. We can't get over it. We sing about it when we come together. We pray about it. We talk about it. We tell others about it. That that joy, that gratefulness, that amazement in God's forgiveness of you is exactly the strength that you need to employ in prayer for the forgiveness of others. You will then, if, you, if you're delighting in God's forgiveness of you, you will be able to delight in the forgiveness of others. Because you want to know the joy of God in His forgiveness of you as you forgive others. You want that person whom you love to, to feel the peace and joy and gratitude that they have been forgiven as you forgive them. And ultimately, ultimately, you are satisfied, just like God is, in the work of the cross. I mean, can you say, can you, can you say seriously that someone's sin against you is too much for the cross to deal with? That's what you're actually saying when you refuse to forgive someone. But God can forgive you, but I can't. What? The cross was enough for God to forgive you, but the cross isn't enough for me to forgive you. That's what we say. That doesn't work for the kingdom member of Christ, right? Because we've been forgiven. We know the strength of Christ's forgiveness at the cross, and so we are confident in the power of the cross to forgive any sin that has been committed against us. So we delight in forgiving others the same way, and our prayers are shaped by that. God Cause me to delight in your forgiveness of me so that I can forgive others with that same joy. Forgive us our debts the way we have forgiven our debtors. And I want to bring that request then back up to the hallowing of God's name. Does the Father's forgiveness of us hallow His name? Oh yes, it does. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 25.11. Paul prays, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Isn't that something? Think about that. Paul, or uh, David, pleading with God, my sin is great. And that's why I want you to forgive me. 
Because in this great sin, when I receive your great forgiveness, your, your ability, your loving kindness, the attributes of your name will be put on display with great glory. The greater the sin, the greater the forgiveness, the greater the glory of God. Psalm 79.9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. And how does the glory of of our Father's name and the forgiveness of our sin against Him become known in the earth so that all may hallow the Father's name for for His great forgiveness? How does that happen? That was a long question. Let me read it again. And how does the glory of our Father's name in the forgiveness of our sins against Him become known in the earth so that all may hallow the Father's name for His great forgiveness? How does that happen? by our extending that forgiveness to others, right? That is a powerful evangelistic, if you will, effort. Forgiving others like our Father has forgiven us is evangelistic. It's, it's missional, if you will. It's, it's effectual for the hallowing of the Father's name. When you have been sinned against greatly by, let's say, some... Not, not just one another, but some member of the kingdom of darkness. They have sinned against you, and you say to them, I forgive you. Sometimes they will look back and say, Wow, thank you. I'm amazed. See, that's when God's forgiveness of us is put on display. So forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lord Jesus, Teach us to pray then like this. Finally, one more request Christ gives to us. Number seven, refuge. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Refuge. What does Jesus mean that we should ask the Father not to lead us into temptation? Now, that's an interesting way of wording that, isn't it? What, what, what's the question you have in your mind? Or maybe the statement. I thought God never tempts anyone. Why am I asking that he wouldn't? I thought God never tempts anyone. Well, yes, that's true. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Therefore, it is true that God never tempts anyone to sin. So then why would we ask our Father not to do something that He cannot do anyway? Lead us not into temptation. Well, this is not what Jesus is teaching us to do here, actually. Jesus is teaching us to pray about the same things that James, Jesus' younger brother, taught us about trials in James 1. Let me give it to you in a nutshell because we're not going to explain all of James 1 this morning. In a nutshell, this is what James and Jesus taught about trials in James 1. Every situation in our lives, every situation in our lives has been given to us as a good gift from the sovereign hand of our unchanging, good, and generous Father. James 1 teaches us that. Everything. Every good and perfect gift comes from above from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
Every situation, every circumstance, every experience, whether pleasant or unpleasant, joyful or painful, comes from the hand of this unchanging good Father. Everything is given to us from that good Father's hand. Now, God's intention in every situation is what? To test us. We read about it earlier in Deuteronomy 8. We see it in James 1. He brings situations to us to test us. And in that testing, the testing that God does is a good thing. It's meant to produce good in us. In fact, James teaches us there in James 1, it's meant to prove the genuineness of our faith. It's meant to purify our faith. And it's meant to perfect or mature our faith. However, here's where we come to this request. Satan wants something different in every situation that God's hand gives to us. He wants something different. Satan wants to get in on every situation of our lives and his intention in every situation is not to test us, but what? To tempt us. To lure us with a tailor-made enticement to sin. Hoping that our own desires will lust after his temptation until we sin and keep on sinning until that sin ends, as James says, in death. When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is fully matured, brings forth what? Death. So that is Satan's objective in every situation of life. God's objective is to test you for your progress and life. And keep in mind that literally every one of our circumstances are a trial in a sense in which God tests us and tempts us, each with opposing intentions. Again, pleasurable circumstances are a test. Pleasurable ones, yes. How are they a test? Will we give thanks to God for them? Or will we idolize ourselves or something else in them? Will we love the world more than God in those pleasurable circumstances? Or will we abandon God for the world? You see how they are a test? A promotion at a a work could be a test. Because it's going to test you, will I still love the Lord my God? Or will I love the world more and give over to its desires? Painful circumstances are a test as well. Will we trust God and endure for the treasure in the trial? Or will we bail out and seek relief and worldly comfort? Will we bless God like Job? Or will we curse God and die? As Job's wife suggests. So every life scenario, pleasant or painful, is a trial of sorts and can be played out like that to one degree or another. A test from God to prove, purify, and perfect our faith. At the same time, a temptation from Satan to lure, entice to sin, and lead to death. So with that in mind, we can understand what Jesus is then teaching us to pray. He's teaching us to pray like this. Father, As your sovereign hand ordains every circumstance for my days, lead me away from Satan's temptations. But lead me into gaining the full treasure of your tests that you intend for me. Please don't let Satan have his way with me in any situation. Don't let him deceive me. Don't let him discourage me. Don't let him distract me. Don't let him destroy me. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. 
Keep me from the evil that the evil one would bring upon me if he had his way. Jesus is teaching us to pray this way. He taught his disciples to pray this way. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And as we pray these things, let us remember that Christ, our Savior and King, is praying for us these same requests. And this is the most important part. As you pray, Father, deliver me. Keep me from temptation. Jesus prays things like he did for Peter, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Or John 17, 15 through 17, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has taken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. And He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You see, Jesus invites us to come to our Heavenly Father and ask for these things. Because we don't have the ability to avoid temptation on our own or be delivered from evil, the Satan's work. Only Christ can bring about that. And how does our being kept from the temptation of the evil one hallow our Father's name? Well, it certainly brings the Father great glory when we run to Him as, and seek refuge in Him from the evil or from the evil of the evil one. Listen to Psalm 5.11. This is this request. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. It brings our Father great glory when we, being kept from temptation and evil, share His holiness. When we become holy as He is holy. So Father, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Make us holy like You are. Keep us from the evil one so that Your name would be hallowed in our lives. This must be our prayer in every, every experience of our earthly life. So, we pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray then like this. I want to close our study of the Lord's Prayer this morning where Jesus does. If you look in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, notice what Jesus says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not, Forgive others their trespasses, neither will you, will your Father forgive your trespasses. We talked about this back when we were asking for forgiveness, as Jesus taught us. When we sit down to quiet prayer, think about when you do that. What time of day, where you are. When you sit down to quiet prayer, that is a time when Many of the thoughts that are easily ignored throughout a busy day 
come running to the forefront of our minds. Have you noticed that? You think about the things that you haven't made right. You think about the things that you fall short in. That time of quiet prayer is very meaningful. And one of those thoughts that comes to our minds is often the need for forgiveness, both the ways in which we long for forgiveness from our Heavenly Father, but also maybe the way that we need to forgive others. Dear ones, listen. Do you have a life of unforgiveness toward others? Why is that so important to prayer in Jesus' mind? Think about it. What's, what's, the, what's the first and foremost prayer often on your heart? Father, forgive me. Right? If you could pray one prayer your whole life, it might be that one, based on your experience, not necessarily what the Lord's Prayer has taught us. I need forgiveness. And so then when others come to us and say, will you forgive me? It's just so disconnected to think I have forgiveness from God, but I will not give forgiveness to that one who's offended me. Do you have a life of unforgiveness toward others? That may be, dear ones, listen, that may be an indication that you still need forgiveness from God. Take that to heart. I don't, I don't know what's going on in your hearts this morning. I don't know what areas that you have built up bitterness in your own heart because of others' sins against you. You cannot give though. I know this. You cannot give what you have not received. You can't give forgiveness to others freely until you have received it from Christ. If you do not give it, that's the pattern of your life, it may be that you have not received it from Christ. Is that you this morning? I don't, I don't want to go to the end of this study until we think about that together because Jesus closes there. So I, I encourage you, I urge you, I plead with you this morning that if you, in looking honestly at your own life, can see an unbroken pattern of bitterness toward those who have sinned against you, and a refusal to forgive others. I ask you to ask yourself, am I really forgiven? How can I not forgive if I've been forgiven so much? And I urge you to come to Christ with that. And ask Him to, t- to tell you the truth about yourself. And maybe as we talk through these things, He already has. Maybe you can say, you know, I, I don't think I am forgiven then. Because if I was, I would forgive differently. So then you know what you need. You need to go to Christ and bow before Him and confess your inability to be a member of His kingdom and ask Him to show you His mercy and His grace and to wash away your, forget- your sin of bitterness and desire to get even with people by whatever you use 
to do so, emotional coldness, so on and so forth, returning evil words. You need to confess that as sin before your Father and receive the forgiveness of Christ and ask Him to change your heart by the renewal of the Holy Spirit because Christ is your righteousness. He has made atonement for you and then He will change your heart by sending His Spirit. And I I guarantee you that if you will come in that humility to Christ and you receive His forgiveness, He will change your heart and you will then begin slowly, maybe at first, to delight in forgiving others when their sins against you. Take this text to heart, dear friend. And plead with God to work in you. To feel the weight of that law and to go to Christ for His, his forgiveness and cleansing and His renewal. May that be our heart. Let's stand. Would you pray with me? Father, as we've come to this this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that we call it, we have been humbled. Our hearts don't always beat with yours in the desires that are most important to you. Cause them to, Father. Thank you that the King of your kingdom is seated at the right hand and He reigns and He has sent His Spirit to live in us. And we, we delight in knowing that even though we fall short greatly and confess our sin in our failure to pray as we ought, as members of your kingdom, that that He is our advocate. His prayers are heard over ours. And He is our propitiation. His atonement has washed us clean. But Father, we are not satisfied in merely the position of being a member of Your kingdom. We want to look like members of Your kingdom. We delight in being justified. But we want to be sanctified. We want to be changed and cleansed so that we desire what you desire, love what you love, hate what you hate, long for what you long for, and are working toward. And we pray that our prayers would mirror this prayer of Christ and that, and that we would then become a means that you have sovereignly appointed as we pray in bringing about your glorious will and the hallowing of your name. Father, I pray this morning that if there is is someone here that has been living a life of unforgiveness, that you would convict their heart. You you, you You would make it very clear to them that you would remove all doubt of their true spiritual condition and that they would come to you in humility, knowing your wrath against our sin knowing the record of debt that stands against us and seeing the mercy that you have extended to them in Christ and your grace to remove that record of debt and lift and resolve the legal demand through Christ and the cross and they would receive it genuinely. You would give them true faith and repentance 
Father, would you do that this morning for your glory, for the hallowing of your name, for the joy of your people, for the joy of that one who would be saved. Father, please do this. We ask it in the name of Jesus, for the name of Jesus, for your name. Amen.